Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I am the teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's good to see all of you here on this cold and frigid uh, Minnesota morning. What better place to be? I got to start with an apology because I found out that I put on my website the, the wrong date and time for a, uh, my band's doing a fundraiser, NDY, uh, at, at the dugout in Montemidi this Friday, and I put on my website that it was last Friday, and so some people showed up there and uh, they said, our pastor told us to come to this bar, and there's no reason why. So that's this coming Friday, it starts at 8.30, and, and uh, <laughs> it's a fundraiser for the kids in Haiti. We're uh, doing this series on uh, wrestling with God. It's just something that um, we just sort of landed on me. I felt like we were supposed to talk about this for a little bit. We'll be getting back to the book of Luke uh, soon enough. But just in light of some of the struggling that I saw uh, over the uh, holiday season, uh, and that I've been aware of in my own life and in the lives of others, I thought something we need to kind of hover on for a little bit here. So last week we talked about uh, what it is to be an Israelite. We're descendants of the Israelites, and the very word means it comes from Jacob, who was renamed Israel because he wrestled with God. He was tenacious and audacious in his wrestling with God. And what that tells us is that it's okay to wrestle with God, to be honest, to be real with some of the struggles that we have. God wants anything but a pretentious people, a people who pretend, who just look so flowery and nice and, and lovely. He wants people like Job who are gutsy, who, who trust in his character enough and trust in the covenant that's strong enough to handle whatever conflict arises. I want to continue that theme uh, th- this morning and talk specifically about doubt. And this is a series that is going to go on for at least one more week because last night as I was going through this message, I got halfway through it and then realized I was out of time. I've never misjudged the length of a message so much in my life. And so last night's ending was really incoherent, uh, but it's gotten better every, you know, each service, so maybe this one's going to be uh, all right, so we'll see. But it's going to go on until next week. I want to start by reading out of the book of James. Um, this is a passage which I would rate as in the top three, in my opinion, it's one of the top three passages that are misunderstood, misapplied, sometimes even abused. Uh, the, number one would be Romans 9, in my opinion. Number two would be the book of Job. Number three would be this passage and a few passages that are like it. And, and you'll see why I think that as this message unfolds. I'll be offering a different way of looking at this passage here in about 15, 20 minutes, but I first want to look at the challenges it presents. It says this, starting in verse 6. James says, when you ask God, he's talking about talking to God, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. It's going every which way. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. I want to talk about faith and doubt. Uh, Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium uh, and every person listening through podcasts, all of our pod parishioners or those watching through television or any other means. Uh, Lord, I thank you for being involved in their life and that has contributed to their being right here, right now, listening to this message. We pray, Lord, that you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, give it your anointing. And Father, just build your kingdom in our life. Use this word to encourage, to convict, to transform. Whatever you see needs to be done, we pray that it would be done in Jesus' name. Also, Lord, we want to, as a, as a people, pray right now for the uh, folks who have been affected by the tragedy in Arizona. And uh, Lord, just want to pray that your comforting spirit would be working down there for the families of those who have been murdered. 
and who have been seriously injured. And we pray for healing for those who are in recovery. Lord God, just be working down there. And we pray for this young man who did the shooting. We pray, Lord God, that uh, your mercy and grace would be on him. And we don't know, can't judge the extent to which this is a psychotic thing or a demonic thing or a free will thing. But God, we thank you that you died for him. And we pray that, Lord, you'd somehow use this as a way of, of uh, bringing your kingdom into his life as well. So just be present down there. And now we submit this time to you and this word to you and our ears to you and our hearts to you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So James says here that we're supposed to ask God, and when we ask, we're not supposed to doubt. Have no doubts. And if we ask without doubting, we'll receive. But if we have doubts, we won't receive. We're not going to receive anything if we have doubts. Uh, That verse and several like it in the New Testament lay at the foundation of what is, I think, uh, a, a source of a major struggle for a lot of people. And that is a model of faith as certainty. Faith is equated with certainty. Your faith is as strong as you are certain. Your faith is as strong as you are free of doubt, free of struggles. The extent that you're confident that you're right and that your beliefs are right and that your prayers will be answered, to that degree your faith is strong. And is based largely on this passage and a few that are very similar to it. It is, I believe, a profoundly unbiblical understanding of faith. It's also one that I think is profoundly unhealthy. Although it is, I suspect, the model of faith that most people in America, anyways, have. There's a friend of mine who, a number of years ago, was... uh, uh, dying of terminal cancer. And we believe in the power of, of prayer and in and, and, and healing. And so we did intercession for him for several years and on a regular basis had people interceding for him and praying for him. And there were times even where it seemed like he turned a corner, was, was, it was improving, but then even, eventually he would sort of sink back. And over a process of three years, uh, just got weaker and weaker and weaker. There came a point where it looked like he was going to die. And I broached the subject with him Uh, that maybe we should start thinking about what happens if you're not healed. We'll continue to pray for healing as long as you feel led to pray in that direction. But but what happens if you die? We need to, are are there, is your house in order? Are there loose ends that maybe need to be tied up? Are, Are you taking care of the business that you need to take care of? There's a good way to die and a bad way to die. And the bad way is to have a bunch of loose ends and to not say goodbye and not bring closure to things. This man would have nothing to do with that, however. Because to even talk about funerals or talk about dying is to admit that you're not certain that you're going to be healed. And so, in the name of faith, he wouldn't even consider that possibility. I'm going to be healed. God's going to heal me. I'm certain of it. And the Bible says if I am certain of it, it will happen. But if I express any kind of doubt whatsoever, it's not going to happen. And unfortunately, he didn't die as well as he should have died because didn't bring closure to a lot of things. To the very, very end, insisting that he's going to be healed. And he saw anything else as a lack of faith. I've known people who will not go to the doctor because to go to the doctor is to admit that maybe Jesus isn't going to heal you, at least not supernaturally. And so it shows a lack of faith. To go to the doctor because of some illness, well, well then you're admitting that you know, there's some doubt that God's going to do it directly. And, and, and so it's the very, as some one person said to me, the very fact that you go to the doctor is why you needed the doctor. And you can understand how if if your model of faith is certainty, that follows. In fact, there are some who will even go further and they'll say, not only must you not doubt that God's going to answer your prayer, you must now doubt that that he's already answered your prayer. 
You must claim it. Uh, that, that's already happened. And so these are folks who will claim that they're healed even though the doctor says there's still cancer there. Why would they give the evidence of cancer more authority than the Word of God? And they think the Word of God tells them that they're already healed. These are folks who will claim that their leg's already healed even though the doctor says it's still broken. Or that their eyes are healed even though they're still almost blind. I had a friend who almost flunked out of college because for several months he went around, he, he was legally blind, had these real thick glasses and went around confessing that he was healed because he came under this teaching that told him that if he just believes enough and is certain enough, he will be healed. He's already healed. Had two car crashes, flunked every test he took because he couldn't read the test or read the books that, were, that the, the tests were on. It was a, it was a Mr. Magoo uh, driving around like that. All the while looking crazy saying, oh, I can see perfectly good. Smash. But see, you can understand why a person would come to that conclusion if this is their understanding of James chapter 1. Something is up here. Jesus never told people to fake it like that. When he prayed for a guy uh, for healing who was blind, uh, he asked the guy, can you see? He didn't say, confess that you can see. He says, can you see? And the guy says, well, kind of. I see people, but they look like tree stumps. And so Jesus didn't say, come on, where's your faith? You've got to confess. It didn't do that. He says, well, let's go back to it and, and just prayed some more. He never asked us to pretend. He never asked us to play psychological gimmicks with our own brains. Something is off. Can we agree? Something is off with that that interpretation of this passage. I mean, if if it's true that if you ask anything, not doubting, God will give it to you. If that's true, does that mean that if somebody in this congregation right now just asks God with absolute certainty and will not doubt that North Korea will become a democracy by 6 o'clock tonight? that's going to happen? It has to happen? Well, aren't there a few other free will agents involved in that decision? Does God automatically just make all of them into a bunch of robots because you prayed a prayer uh, that, that, that was certain of something? Something else is going on here. And what about certain conundrums that we get into? I mean, think about it here. We've got to think about these things. What if there's Bill? Bill is praying uh, without doubt that Sue will be his wife. And what if Sue is praying without doubt that God will protect her from Bill? Because <laughs> Bill's a stalker. <laughs> but Bill won't get that message. Okay, look, at God can't answer both those prayers and still hold James 1 true. James 1's got to have to be falsified for somebody. And let's hope it's, it's, it's falsified for Bill. Uh, but see, there's something else going on here. But it's the foundation for this model of faith that says that the more certain you are, the more psychologically certain you are of something, the more faith that you have. And it affects everything in some really hazardous ways sometimes. Several weeks ago, there's a lady who came up after this service. And uh, I, hope she's, I hope she's here right now. It's a dear lady. And, and she wanted to know if she was saved. And, and she really was struggling with this, kind of had tears in her eyes. And, and I asked, why would you doubt that? And she goes, well, I believe, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, uh, you know, but I, I also have a lot of doubts. I don't know why I just struggle with a lot of doubts. You know, do I have enough faith that God will save me? And see, I, I tried to, in the limited time that I had there, explain to her that her picture of God was really not in accord with what is revealed in Jesus Christ when he dies for us on the cross. Her picture of God, you know, she had this understanding of faith, which is so widespread that it's sort of a quantity or an intensity that you can measure. How much faith do you have? Can you measure it? And so it's like, here's God looking at this faithometer. Here's the faithometer. Uh, Trevor put this together. And, and on the one extreme is, is you can put, are certain that God doesn't exist. On the other extreme, you're certain that God does exist and all sorts of other things. And, and God's up there measuring, you know, how, how much faith do you have? 
is your faith strong enough to be saved? Okay, and there's this faith meter. So God now, instead of being the lover of our souls, is re- re- reduced down to one of these meter men who go around and just are like checking your faith meter. How are you doing today? And, 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 and now we got to wonder, because we're not even told, how great must our faith be to be saved? It's 51%. Will that cut it? You know, uh, or do you need 53% or maybe it's 75% or maybe it's 97% or God forbid it's be 100%. You know, what is the faith meter that's required? We're not told. We're not, even, we're not even given our own little measuring thing to see what it is. But there must be some quantity there that we've got to get it. And if we just get enough, it, maybe, maybe 51 will get us saved, but we need 57% if we're going to be healed and we need 96 if we're going to get the Porsche. <laughs> and you need 100% if you're going to change North Korea. Okay, is it, is it something like that? You know, so, and that, what happens if you have, you have the prerequisite 51% on, on Tuesday, but on Wednesday you're down to 49% and you get in a car crash and die? <laughs> Bites to be you because now you don't qualify. <laughs> is, is there's something wrong with this model of faith, isn't there? There's it's something fundamentally screwed up with it. Um, it. It really is a form of salvation by works. If you, if you look at it, here's, here, the work is trying to convince yourself of something. You're like the Wizard of Oz lion. The lion on the Wizard of Oz. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And if you can just get that meter, just crank that meter up enough, well, then you're saved. But if it falls too low, well, then you're not. If you just crank it up, then you'll be healed. But if you don't get up there enough, then you're not. You see, it's this, it's this salvation by works. It's really, I think, a form of idolatry. Because your worth and well-being, your life, your self-esteem, your sense of security, it's rooted not just in the confidence that God is a gracious God who's going to save you, it's rooted in something you're doing here, your faith meter and, and, and you're saved if you can just talk yourself into the truth that Jesus is Lord, the truth that he died for your sins, the truth that he's going to heal you, give you the Porsche or change North, North Korea or whatever it may be. It's a form of idolatry, getting life from something that you're doing. And it wreaks all sorts of other havoc in our lives. Um, people who really believe that, that faith is a matter of certainty, well, if, if, if that is what faith and salvation is all about, then all doubting... All doubt must be evil. It's evil to doubt. It must be sinful to doubt. Right? And, and so these folks will avoid all doubt like the plague because so much hangs on not doubting. And what it can do, I've seen this as a professor at Bethel, I've seen it as a pastor, but it can install in some Christians a phobia of learning. A fear of learning. Because you just might read something or you just might watch something on television or you just might take a class that's going to rock your faith a little bit. It just might turn out that somebody intelligent disagrees with you, and what are you going to do with that? Your faith meter might go down, and if that's your source of life, well, now your idol has just been assailed. You're in serious trouble. And so what can happen is, if we think faith is a matter of certainty, is we have a, this insulated, isolated kind of faith. We just protect it from the mean, nasty world where questions are asked. And I've seen people who are very, very intelligent who even have PhDs, but when it comes to talking theology, you'd swear you're talking to a second grader. Because they've never given their brain permission to really think seriously about their faith. Because too much is at stake. The faith meter needs to stay at least above 51% or whatever it may be. Uh, when I was at, at Bethel, a professor at Bethel, a student said to me one time, and this is a slogan I heard several times while I was there. Apparently it's fairly common. It just reflects this mindset altogether. This, this student was angry uh, because I had said something in a theology class that they'd never heard before. That's cause to get angry. And he said, Dr. Boyd, I've heard that if it's new, it can't be true. And if it's old, it's already been told. And there's students going, yeah, that's that's right, amen, come on. I was thinking to myself, that is the single stupidest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. 
I didn't say that. But, but if you take it, come on, if that's true, then well, isn't every truth new when it's first discovered? <laughs> if you lived by that, we'd never have any truth around. But more importantly, I said to this student, I said, okay, look, at, even if that is a true slogan, it only applies to you if you're confident that you already have all the truth. Because otherwise, there might be something that's an old truth, but you haven't heard it before, so it's, it's going to be new to you. You see? So the question you got to ask yourself is, are you confident that you are like one of the few people on the planet that happen to get all the truth, nothing but the truth in second grade? And if that is the case, what are you doing in college? Because <laughs> you've already got it. You see, it installs this phobia about learning. And it's the reason why often Christians come across as, as, as so narrow. Uh, they're, they're, they live their life quarantined, trying to protect their sacred beliefs. They only want to hear what, what, what agrees with them and read what agrees with them and hang out with people who agree with them. And, and, and their life is structured around the rightness of, of their beliefs. They've got to convince themselves that they are right and want to belong to the club of people who convince themselves that they are right. And if you've ever been around people who are just living to prove that they are right, it's not very pleasant. And evangelism suffers just a little bit because of it. And what happens is that if you have this idea that faith is certainty then, and all doubt is evil, then invariably you end up demonizing the people that disagree with you. If, if doubt is evil, then the bringers of doubt must be evil. And the more persuasive their arguments are, the more evil they are. And so you can't have calm, rational, intelligent discussions about matters of faith because too much is at stake with this. You don't reason about this stuff because the minute you introduce reason, you introduce ambiguity. You see? And, and that means the faith meter might go down. No, what happens in, in circles where you have a model that faith is a matter of certainty is that when someone comes and introduces doubts or disagrees with you, whatever, your amygdala gets activated. Your fight or flight reflex gets activated. And this is what is fueled throughout history on the part of, of religious Christians and, and, and Muslims and other groups. The response that says, kill the infidels, burn them, bomb them. We ought to protect ourselves from these people. Uh, you know, they're not really of God, whatever they say, because if they were really of God, they would agree with us. If they really cared about it, they would agree with us. Everybody who's righteous agrees with us. We're certain of that. And because it's certain, there's no room for doubt or ambiguity or reasoning here whatsoever. Behind every question, well, it must be the devil working. It must be some kind of sin in your life. You can't just have a question for intelligence sake. I remember when I was first at the University of Minnesota, took a class in the Bible as literature. Went to my pastor when I discovered in this class, oh, it was just so disconcerting to me. I was a new Christian, and now I was realizing that there's, the order of events in the Gospels don't agree. Uh, they, they disagree on a lot of points. And the wording is always kind of different. And a few of the details seem to contradict each other. Now, that could, nothing could concern me less. I know enough about the culture to realize that back in the first century, no one would worry about that. But the model of inspiration I was given, I had to worry a lot about that. This is the Word of God. So I went to my pastor, and I actually had a chart. I charted every disagreement between the Gospels. This is the kind of guy I am, a little obsessive. And I went to him, and I said... This is supposed to be the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, but look at all these contradictions. Help me here. And his response was to ask if I had moral sin in my life, have I been inappropriate with women? I'm serious. It's like, can we talk about the chart? As a matter of fact, I had been sinless, at least for a while here, but... but, uh, See, it's like, what has that got to do with it? And, and his response was, well, the only reason why anyone questions the Word of God is because they're trying to run from it. Now, if you chunk that down, that means, you know, if you flush it out a little bit, it's like, the only reason why anyone disagrees with me is because they're running from the truth. <laughs> what a convenient position to have. 
you know, that, that's, that's got to be nice. But you find that all over the place. There's some kind, of, some kind of moral issue behind every question that people may ask. And I still get it to this day, not as much as I used to. I think a lot of folks in this camp have given up on me. But, but uh, letters or confrontations where they're, 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 there's this accusatory tone. What was the real reason why you believe what you believe? What are you running from? Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, a month and a half ago, uh, I and the, uh, some of the leaders of Woodland Hills Church were up at the meeting house in Canada and just had a delightful time. But you find these folks everywhere, so this isn't about what church it happened at. But I gave a sermon up there, and then I met with some people afterwards out in their gathering area, and this person approached me, I actually was in line, second or third in line, and I already had a sense, I mean, do you, you can get a sense, like, this is going to be trouble. <laughs> There's just this air. The way the characters like, I don't know. The way they look at you. And then they start talking and the, the, just the fluctuation of their voice. Even in Canada, you could tell us, okay, this is trouble. Uh, Mr. Boyd. You know, that's a righteousness. Oozing with righteousness and rightness. And he, he says, I want to know why you and Bruxy, Bruxy's the preacher up there, why you and Bruxy refuse to preach the truth. <laughs> I love those questions. When are you going to stop beating your wife? Yeah. And I wanted, with every bone in my body, I didn't do this, but I wanted to say, well, because our master Satan forbids us to preach the truth. <laughs> and he tried to go, I knew it, I knew it. I wanted to so badly. Oh, I have to just resist this temptation. Unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable worth. Your mother. <laughs> uh, it was just so. It turns out the truth that I was refusing and Bruxy was refusing to preach was that Jesus Christ uh, is divine. He believed that Jesus Christ was just a prophet, and so why were we running from that truth? And it, there's a line of people there, so I said, "Sir, that's a really big question. You know, I don't have time to talk about it right now. Here's here's a book that you should read. I think it would really help." Oh, why are you trying to hide behind a book? You're afraid to talk to me face to face. And I was like, it might have a little bit more to do with the fact that there's 20 people behind you, and you're being really rude right now. Can you move along? And his last word would be to, to me was, was, if you don't repent of preaching these lies, you're going to burn in hell. Which is another thing I don't get. I don't get how, how are threats supposed to help? Uh, how do threats change beliefs? I mean, are beliefs the kind of thing you can just like, and Mark has said, go, I change? If you believe something, you believe something. How does it help to, if you put a gun to my head right now and you say, okay, uh, you have to, within five seconds, believe that the trip to the moon uh, was a hoax, because there are people out there who believe that stuff. Uh, You have to agree that that is a hoax. Well, I may tell you that I believe it's a hoax, because you've got a gun to my head. Uh, but, But I can't just choose to believe that. Like, oh, I see your point. I've never quite seen it from that angle before, down the barrel of a gun. You raise a very good argument here. How do you change beliefs with threats? This is what I don't get about that whole nice little practice they had throughout the Middle Ages of torturing people into the faith. You know, you put a person on the stretcher and you stretch them out and you go, now do you agree that Jesus Christ is Lord? What about now? What about now? How does that increase the faith of meter? I don't get that. But you've had that practice throughout history. What people need to change beliefs are reasons. You know, Calvin is your burning Michael Servetus there at the stake trying to get him to believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, why don't you rather put before him some persuasive arguments? And it's pretty hard to think rashly when you're on fire anyways. But but give him some reasons, and maybe he'll agree, maybe he won't, but that's that's what changes beliefs. I don't get 
this thing about trying to make person, a person certain of something they're not certain of by torturing them. Something obviously is amiss with this application, at least, of this verse, James chapter 1. But it's there in the Bible, and it's the Word of God, so we can't, we can't pretend like it's not there. We've got to deal with it. So let's deal with it. James says you have to ask without doubt. And if you ask without doubt, you'll receive an answer. Otherwise, you're not going to receive anything. What do we do with that? Let me say two things here. Two things that are going to be very, very important. Lock this in. The first is this, and it applies to this passage and, and a, a number of other passages that are like it when it comes to the, the issue of faith. It's very important to remember that the Bible speaks a very hyperbolic language. Uh, Semitic culture, Jewish culture, in fact, Mediterranean culture in general, the ancient Near East, what was a, their languages have a lot of hyperbole. That's exaggeratory language. They use hyperbole to emphasize a point, but they all understand that you don't take it literally. It's like if I tell you, I've spoken to you a million times about hyperbole. You know, I, it's not like I've been counting how many times. As, a million as opposed to 909,999,000. 000, no, I, I, I mean it as, as a, an emphasis. A lot of times I've talked about hyperbole. So we use it in our culture, but we don't use it nearly the extent that, uh, that, that the Hebrews did. Uh, and so when, when you're reading the Bible and you come upon statements that just seem to be outrageous if you take them literally... It may be the case, not always, but it may be the case that you're dealing with hyperbole there. Sometimes what happens is folks take, we tend to be a very literalistic culture, and if you take some of this stuff literally, it can really wreak havoc on your life. Raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's older, he'll never depart from them. Nice proverb there. But I can't tell you how many parents I know who have been blaming themselves because their child walked away from the faith, and they thought they had a magical formula that promised them if they just raised them right, they couldn't possibly walk away from the faith. No, see, the author is simply saying it's really important to raise kids right, to train them right. But of course they still have free will. They can still walk away, but it's speaking hyperbolically. And some of that, I think, is going on here in this James passage. A second thing is this. It's always important, so, so vitally important, whenever you are reading the Bible and and pondering the meaning of a particular verse, it's so important that you look at the context of that verse. I have seen this verse that we're dealing with here, uh, James 1, quoted literally hundreds of times in different books. I will tell you that in the vast majority of them, the context has been left out. Every verse has to be read in the context of the chapter, in the context of the book, in the context of the entire canon. When you're looking at any particular tree, make sure that you zoom out and look at the forest because the forest helps define the tree. Every verse, the meaning of every verse is, is inextricably connected to the context in which it's found. In this case, if you just go to the verse before the one that I quoted at the beginning, it completely changes the meaning of the verse. In verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it, namely wisdom, will be given to you. But when you ask for it, for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. The passage is speaking specifically about wisdom, about asking God for wisdom. It's not giving us a carte blanche check to ask God for anything. It's not talking about how to change the politics of North Korea by 6 o'clock tonight or how to ensure that someone's going to be your spouse. It's talking about going to God for wisdom. And James says when you go to God for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt this, that he gives generously. He's a God who wants to give wisdom. He's not holding out on you. And number two, that he doesn't find fault, that he forgives you. 
And that, that the past sins aren't going to be the, the blockage here between you and him. And in other words, the trust has to be with God's character. Trust that he's a God who wants to lead you, who wants to pour his wisdom out on you, who does forgive you, and then he'll give you that wisdom. He'll lead you and guide you. And that's why, see, if you don't do that, if you doubt God's character, you think he's still holding a grudge on you or he doesn't want to give you wisdom, you will be like a wave tossed about on the sea. Why? Because you're living without the wisdom of God. You're directionless. You've got no, no bearing. Uh, it's talking specifically about wisdom. This isn't a passage that's trying to get us to convince ourselves that we're certain of stuff that we can't be certain of. What a torturous thing to try to inflict on yourself. The Wizard of Lion, the, the, the Wizard of Lion, the Lion of the Wizard of Oz syndrome, the Wizard of Lion. Uh, it's torturous. Faith in the Bible is a covenantal concept. It's a covenantal concept. It's about, it's about trusting another person or another partner, and it's about pledging to walk trustworthy for that partner. It's not primarily a psychological concept. It's not a faithometer concept. It's a, are you willing to pledge your life sort of a concept. It's a commitment term. It doesn't imply certainty on things. When you go to the altar, if you go to the altar and the preacher says, do you take this person to be your lawfully wedded spouse? And you say, I do. You've had faith in the biblical sense of the term. That is faith. You're pledging your life to this person and you're pledging to trust this other person. Now, does it mean that you're certain that everything's going to go the way you want it to go? Does it mean that you're, gonna, you're even certain that you're going to stay married? Are you certain that you're going to have, life, have a life happy ever after? Well, at least in a logical sense, you can't be certain. You don't know that, that, that this, however much you may feel in the moment that you know, you don't know every nook and cranny about this person. In fact, you're going to spend the rest of your life discovering them and they you. That's the adventure of marriage. Uh, there might be a dishonest streak or a mean streak that you didn't know about. Uh, that maybe seems impossible in the moment, but it could be there. It could be the case that they've got an implicit tumor in their brain that's growing, and tomorrow morning that's going to start activating, and it's going to completely change their personality, and now you're stuck with them the rest of your life. You don't know that that's not the case. 45% of all marriages end in divorce. And if you're in the Bible Belt, it's about 8% higher than that. So you can't know for certain that this is all going to work out, but you're willing to take the risk. Uh, you have enough evidence of this person's character and of your compatibility to say, I pledge my life to you and I will trust that you will do the same to me. It's not about certainty. It's about do you have enough reason to now commit to this covenant? Faith is a covenantal concept. It doesn't imply certainty. It's rather acting to be trustworthy and to trust in spite of the fact that you're not certain. It's an action concept. An action concept. And we use it in every area of our life. When Jesus says, according to your faith be it unto you, he's giving us a life principle. Everything we do except math and logic involves some element of risk. You can't be certain. When you get on a plane, you're, you're, you're exercising faith. You don't know that the pilots are sober and you don't know that there's not a terrorist there. But it's a pretty good bet, so you're willing to ask step on in faith. All right? that, that is an act of faith. Uh, uh, when you have kids, you don't know that they're going to turn out right, but you're willing to take the bet. When you change jobs, you don't know that this is all going to work out right. It might be absolutely disastrous. But if you have enough faith, then you, you, you take that step. Faith is acting, acting in, in, in spite of the fact that you can't be certain of the thing that you're acting about. And it's that way with all of our beliefs. You believe in God, that's an act of faith. You don't believe in God, that also is an act of faith. Because it just might turn out that he exists. It might turn out that there's a lot at stake in this. You believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's an act of faith. You're going beyond the evidence. I think it's reasonable because you're going with the evidence. But, but uh, it's an act of faith. But it's also an act of faith to say, no, he didn't rise from the dead. No, he's not Lord. Because it just might turn out that he did. And it might turn out that if you looked into the evidence a little more thoroughly, you might be convinced of that of yourself. It all involves an act of faith. 
stepping out when the, the, you can't be certain of it. Uh, let, let me close with one thing here. There's a time to doubt, and there's a time to shut doubt off. And we're going to come back to this uh, next week. But faith is a matter of saying, I commit my life to this in a covenant, uh, and I trust the other person to commit theirs. Even though we're not certain of this, we're going to walk a certain way. We're going to live a certain way. We're going to do life on the assumption that. That's what faith is all about. And there's a time to doubt and a time to shut doubt off. When you're courting somebody, to go back to the marriage analogy, you should question things. Does this person have the kind of character I can trust? Are they honest? Is their faith genuine? Are we basically compatible? Uh, Do the parts that bug me about them, are they not deal breakers? You know, those kind of things. It's appropriate to doubt. But then when you say, I do... It's appropriate to shut that off. Because it doesn't serve any purpose to now live in the theoretical possibility of not being married. You just got married. And now living in the theoretical realm of, of, of not being married will only serve to erode your marriage. Now you still can have questions about other things. Uh, you know, are they good at balancing the checkbook? Are they good at fixing the sink? Uh, you know, do, will they mow the lawn when it gets long? There's a lot of things that you can have questions about that you will in the course of time find out about, but they're no longer deal breakers. No, 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 you, you, you bought the barn, all right? Or the farm or whatever that analogy is. Uh, and, and once you do that, now it's appropriate to shut that doubt off. People who do marriage with one foot out the divorce door, see what happens is that just sucks the life out of your marriage. There's a depth of love that you can only discover by being fully invested, by saying yes to something and walking in faith and turning off the doubt-o-meter stuff. You see, and, and, and I've known people who go to counseling to fix their marriage, but they're actually doing faith that their marriage isn't going to work because every thought they think about this partner is about how bad they are. You see, faith is about what direction are you moving? What, what, what are you running in your head? Uh, what's the pledge that you've made? And there are some realities that can only be discovered. In fact, the most, the most beautiful and most profound realities are only discovered after you make the commitment. It's that way with Jesus Christ. There's a time to doubt, and maybe you're there. I'm just not sure. I mean, I, you know, hey, look at Explore it. Uh, check it out. We've got some books back there in the gathering area that could help you. Look at the evidence. Uh, weigh all the factors. Why would anyone be, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord? There's a place and a time for that. God gives you space to do that. But know this. There's also a time to commit. And there's a time when you will know if you're honest with yourself that you, you, maybe you're not logically certain, but we're not certain about anything. But you know enough to make a commitment here that this is the most reasonable, rational way to live. This is the way that you're supposed to live. And so you start walking in a certain way. What happens is that you can get addicted to doubt. Living this theoretical, maybe possible, it could be, it could be. And, and you want to wait till everything, is, every question is answered and all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted and that time's never going to come. That's right. But what happens is you've just missed the most important, most lovely, most transforming, most powerful thing in your life. Because when you commit to Jesus Christ, yes, it, it, it's faith, it's always faith, but as you walk this way and shut down all that theoretical thinking about possibly not and start living as though it is true that he's always there, as, as though it is true that, that he's Lord of your life and as though it is true that you're to be submitted to him, you'll discover that it is true. You begin to move into the experience of it. You begin to experience the transformation of it. It's only after you commit that you begin to discover the reality of God's presence and the power of his love and the transforming joy and the peace that he puts in your life. You'll never get there if you're always living in the theoretical, possibly not, possibly not. There's a time to question, and then there's a time to shut that off. Now, following Jesus doesn't mean that every question's been answered. No, there's a million questions. 
about how to interpret this verse. What does that mean? What about this archaeological piece of data? What about this possible you know, thing over here? What about the discrepancies in the Gospels? Fine. But see, now you work on those questions from the inside of the relationship rather than as the condition to getting into the relationship. I encourage you, if uh, there's some folks listening, I'm sure, who you've got, you've got enough evidence to say yes. You've got enough going. You see enough light to know this is the right way to go. But there's a little advantage to keeping one foot out the door. You know, you, you just never have to commit. You've got a good reason there for living your own life and doing your own thing. Uh, the Lord is saying, get in the game. Get in the game. Live 24-7 the truth that you've committed to. Be faithful to your covenant vows. Get in the game. Believe. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm, I, I, all my eggs are in this basket, and I'm going for it. And as you walk in that, that's when the reality begins to kick in. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here with any uh, need whatsoever, whether it's an issue pertaining to your faith or something else, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Um, and, or if you just want to pray on your own, uh, feel free to do that as well. But Lord, right now, I'm going to close especially for a prayer for the person who's, who's been a follower, but, but the, the, they live in the theoretical realm of doubt. Uh, and, it's, it, and, and Lord, it's because there's, they're afraid of the commitment or there's something they gain from staying theoretical. Father, I pray that you just show them how there's no good purpose served by doing that any longer. Father, those who are kind of fence-sitters, the sort of followers, the occasional attenders, those who are sort of in the game theoretically, but, but there's always a, a foot out the door. I pray, Lord God, that you convict them right now. And Lord, uh, just cause them right now. Holy Spirit, pull them uh, to, to, to buy into it, to buy the farm, to, to say, I, I'm going to live my life now, starting now, 24-7, on the assumption that this is true because it is true. Father, I thank you for being a God who calls us to reason, Come let us reason. You're not a God who tells us to play psychological gimmicks with ourselves or to be irrational or anything of the sort. I thank you for the space that you give us. And I thank you, God, also for the, the, the power and the love that you pour on us once we've gotten married. Draw us closer to you, Lord God. Increase our faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grow us in the faith. And free us from all false ideas of faith that do nothing but torment us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and exercise faith. <laughs>